0: I would ask that you please open your Bibles now to Acts chapter 16. We're going to begin today at verse 35. Since the very inception of the church, the covenant community of God has always functioned like a society within a society. Augustine famously spoke about the church as the place where the city of God intersects with the city of man. Every society necessarily has two elements with which the church must contend political authority, and pagan culture. Ever since the church began, there has been immense debate about the extent and form of engagement that the church should have with both politics and culture. Every Christian agrees that we should seek to impact, but not everyone agrees how that impact should occur. We are continuing now to follow the second missionary of Paul, the second missionary journey, as he shared the gospel and planted churches throughout the Roman Empire, and as we study this ministry of the greatest missionary who ever lived, we are asking ourselves as a church, how can we follow this example? How can we imitate this missionary? How can we seek to proclaim the good news to our neighborhood, our community right here in Levittown and Long Island at large? Today, we're going to pick up with the epilogue of the story we finished last week about the Philippian jailer. And then what we're going to do is follow Paul to the city of Thessalonica and see the gospel begin to take root there. And in doing so, we're going to see that the way the church engages with both politics and culture is on display in our passage. Please follow along in Acts chapter 16, verse 25. It reads, But when it was day... Let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them, and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia, and when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. Continuing on to chapter 17, it reads, Now when they had passed through uh, Amphipolis and Apollonia... They came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, "'This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ.' And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did many, a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women." And Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things, and when they had taken money as a security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. Let's pray God's blessing and on the reading and preaching of His Word today. Father God, we ask that as we come before Your Word today, and in particular as we hear some challenging and controversial things, I ask, Lord, that you would help us to understand with clear accuracy what your Word is teaching us today through the example of Paul and his ministry. Lord, we pray that in all of what we say today, that the gospel would be central and of first importance. Lord, I ask that each and every one of us would have our eyes transformed in the way that we see things, the way that we observe reality, the way that we value things because of your Word today. We ask that your Holy Spirit would change us, transform us, make us like Christ, we pray. Amen. We're going to begin today by looking at Christianity and government, and then we're going to look at Christianity and culture, and finally we're going to talk about Christianity and Levittown. Let's talk about Christianity and government. Today we read about two different encounters where the government set itself in opposition to the people of God And their message. And in both cases, legal action was taken against Christians even though they had broken no laws. In Philippi, Paul and Silas were beaten and they were treated like terrorists who had come to destroy the city. And in Thessalonica, the Christian converts were fined as a security deposit against any potentially seditious activity. Our main focus for this point is going to land on the end of chapter 16. And there are several curious things I want you to notice that are going on here. First of all, did you notice where Paul and Silas were when the magistrates send word to have them released? They're back in prison. Did you hear what happened last week? Did you hear what took place? That's right. After being released by an earthquake that was sent by the Lord and then taken to the jailer's house where he washed their bloody wounds and then was baptized along with his believing family, that jailer then walked back with them to the prison. He took them back there, and I'm confident that Paul and Silas were not taken there under duress. Consider that instead of curling up on the jailer's spare cot, Paul and Silas obeyed the government's rules, those who had sent them to prison, and they returned there of their own free will. Paul and Silas walked back with that jailer to their cells where they willingly remained in custody of the state. Then, when the magistrates woke up the next morning, they got together and they realized how foolish they had been the day before. They had taken two strangers, two visitors to their city, and they had publicly stripped them of their clothes and had them beaten. And these two men had not broken any law in any way. And in the heat of that moment, it probably felt good to those rulers because it seemed to them that they were receiving all of the goodwill of the people by facilitating the mob. But when things quieted down, the blood cooled off, they probably remembered that allowing activity like that is exactly the kind of thing that caused local magistrates to get removed from their post by governors and emperors. In fact, facilitating riots against foreigners had occasionally been the cause for city officials like these being beheaded because their leadership was a threat to the Roman peace, the Pax Romana. So they were probably sweating bullets that morning as they gathered together and they asked each other, what have we done? So they came up with a plan. The city leaders sent word to Paul and Silas and said, oh, you're free to go, just get out and leave town immediately. But instead of accepting their get out of jail free card, Paul said, They have beaten us publicly, uncondemned men who were Roman citizens, and have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No. Let them come themselves and take us out. Now, what's going on here? It's really important to understand that in the Roman society, there was a two tiered system. If you were a Roman citizen, you had far more rights. ...than if you were a non-citizen. There were many advantages, but one of them included protections against physical abuse by the government. You did not have those protections if you were not a Roman citizen. And by sliding that little detail into his reply... ...Paul was ensuring that these officials were made aware that they had not only facilitated something unethical... ...they had actually committed a crime. If you were to attack a Roman citizen... The Roman government viewed that as attacking Rome itself. Because of its geographical location and the lack of standing in the empire, it's possible that these magistrates of this city of Thessalonica, that even these magistrates were not citizens. So imagine that, non-citizens attacking citizens. How would that be received by their leaders? At this point, they had no choice but to personally come to the jail and to apologize. Imagine that, politicians apologizing. And then they requested, not demanded, but requested that Paul and Silas get up and leave town. Why is it that Paul takes this course of action? There have been many times before, and there will be many times in the future, where Paul experiences much physical violence without ever pulling out his citizenship card. We do see him do that later on, on a couple of occasions, but most of the time he does not. Why does he go through the process here of shaming these officials in this way? The answer is actually pretty simple. By making a public spectacle and receiving a public apology, Paul was protecting the future church of that city from further aggression. Paul could have hired a powerful lawyer and destroyed the career of every last one of those men, but instead, Paul simply wanted it to be on record that he had done nothing wrong and that his message was not illegal in any way. Guy Waters puts it this way in his commentary. He says, Paul had in mind the interests of the gospel in the Roman world. He knew that quietly enduring this unjust treatment had the potential of establishing a precedent for Roman leaders, treatment of other Christian servants. He also knew that Christians were the very best citizens and did not want Christians to garner an unearned reputation as subversive to the state or of social order. From this, we can learn some very helpful principles about how the church is to operate in relation to government. This is certainly not an exhaustive list, it's not intended to be, but this will hopefully help us to begin to think through our relationship to those that the Lord has instilled with temporary earthly authority. First, be a good citizen. Paul could rightly stand before these magistrates and defend his innocence because he was innocent. He had done nothing wrong. He was not being subversive. In fact, he taught that believers should be submissive to the state unless that state fell under violation of God's command. Consider as an example Romans chapter 13. I would encourage you to study those first six verses of that chapter, but he writes in the beginning of that chapter, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. Now, if we jump down to verse 6, he continues and says, For because of this you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Now, this does not sound like the writings of a subversive terrorist. This is not some kind of manifesto against the government every earthly ruler has been given a position of what the Bible calls ministry by God to promote peace and honor the good while punishing the guilty. Some do this more faithfully than others, and all leaders will give an account. And we who operate under their laws will give an account for how we follow them. Christian, you should be the kind of person who could never be found guilty of any just law. Secondly, Christian, you should accept persecution. There is definitely a growing animosity against Christians in this country. Multiple times this week, I was reading articles about laws across this country in relation to the changing of abortion restrictions. And as I was reading, I was reading from secular news outlets, and on multiple times, from multiple sources, they referred to Christian groups as, quote, extremists. Extremists. That's what they call people who fly planes into buildings. And that is the word that they are starting to use publicly in some of the most powerful news outlets in our country to describe those who live by Christian convictions. If things like this continue on this trajectory, then persecution will go far beyond losing a promotion or an invitation to a dinner party. Expect that. But don't fear that. "'Jesus said, "'Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you "'and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. "'Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, "'for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you.'" When Jesus was arrested and falsely accused, he did not revile in return. Paul did not throw a tantrum when he was physically accosted. and We should not fear mistreatment either." Paul would later write these strengthening words to the Corinthian church. He says, But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Christian, in the face of government that is increasingly hostile to you, Endure. And the third thing, pursue religious freedom. Many churches that Paul founded were plagued with ongoing persecution. They experienced lots of trials. For example, the Thessalonian church that we read about earlier in chapter 17, Paul later wrote to them and said, Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and your faith in all your what? Your persecutions. And in the afflictions that you are enduring. In other words, this church experienced a ton of political opposition. But that is not how things worked in Philippi. That church, this church in Philippi that becomes such a cornerstone of the early church. That church was given the great blessing of meeting freely with seemingly little or maybe no government opposition at all. And how did that come about? Because of Paul standing up in this chapter in the way that he did. We have a great blessing of having legal protections for Christians built into the code of law in this country. However, those laws are not always acknowledged, nor will they remain in place without effort. Let me give you an example of two member families here at our church. There are two families in the church who have adult daughters now living in other cities who both experienced a very similar situation. Both of these girls went to public high schools on Long Island. Both of them were told that they were not permitted to attempt uh, to open a Christian club in their schools. Both of them were told it was unacceptable, even though it certainly is, and there is no law prohibiting it. Both of them took many steps to get the school to allow them to have a Christian club approved, and they were repeatedly denied. And both of them started the steps of having a lawsuit against the school to allow them to have what legally is acceptable and both of them were eventually permitted to have those clubs. One of our current members, one who is sitting in this room right now, is saved, has become a Christian because they attended one of these Christian clubs and came to Christ. That is good news. And that, that occurred because someone fought for religious freedom. Pursuing legal protections for the church and Christian ministries to flourish is exactly what Paul is doing in this chapter. It is exactly what those two high school school girls did from our church. It's what we should be doing as faithful Christian citizens when we have the opportunity and when we see ways that the church is being stifled by government or Christian speech is being systematically shut down in our nation, we won't always win. But pursuing religious freedom is a battle worth fighting. Now, I am typically not a very political person. I am not telling you how to vote or what to do in your political aspirations. All I am saying to you is this. Christians don't give up the fight for religious freedom. The second thing that we're going to look at today is Christianity and culture. Have you ever had somebody try to insult you? And what they said about you actually was something that you viewed to be a giant compliment? Look again at the accusation made by the enemies of Paul and Silas in verse 6. Now, these people were speaking about Paul and Silas, even though Paul and Silas were not present with them at the time. They said, and when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. They turned the world upside down. In order for these people to make such an extreme claim, it must be true that Paul's ministry had spread. News about what had taken place was traveling along the uh, the trade routes across the empire of exactly how this gospel message was impacting society. And when we look back at the reason Paul and Silas were imprisoned in Philippi, we read something similar. It says in chapter 16, 21, they advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. In Thessalonica, the accusation looked like this. They're acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. Now, in both of these cases, the people were wrong to say that there was anything illegal being done by Paul or anyone who heard his message, but... They were not wrong to say that they preached a different message, and they were not wrong to say that what they are doing is against, quote, our customs. Do you know what that means? That means they are doing things not the way that we do them. Their culture is different than our culture. They were not wrong to say that the gospel message is contrary to their customs. Here's the thing. It is the world that is upside down. The message of the gospel did shake the world. It did rearrange values. It didn't turn an ordered world upside down, though. It turned a toppled world right side up. Our world is upside down. The culture in which we swim has absolutely inverted good and evil. What we are going to do... Actually, as I was preparing, I'll just tell you. I I created a list. I was like, going through and I was like, okay, here's ten things that our culture just gets completely upside down. And then I began to work on this and I realized... And if I just spend time on these 10 things, I'm not going to talk about anything else. Let's just look at one of them. So let's look at one category where our culture has certainly gotten things upside down, and that category is sexuality. Let's jump right into the deep end here. For hundreds of years, our society has been pushing to normalize fornication and adultery. From the roaring 20s to the summer of love in 1967 to the present live-in culture, purity is a foreign concept here. I remember when I was a youth minister in Queens, I spoke to a young man who was in high school. I believe he was a senior in high school, and that was right around the time that I got married. He said to me, you are the first person I have ever met in my life that got married before moving in with the girl. That is upside down. We are in the middle of a sexual revolution that has muddied the way and the the meaning and purpose of God's design for men and women in ways that nobody in our society could even imagine a decade ago. Just this past week, our Congress passed a law that legally defines marriage as a legal document, a contract between two people of any gender. That is upside down. The mantra, love is love, has become the anthem of the upcoming generation. And one of the big box stores right here in Levittown There was, until recently, an entire section dedicated to LGBT books for children. The book that was most prominently placed in this section was marketed to eight-year-olds, and I'll put the picture of it up here on the screen for you. This is it. It's called Dotson, and the subtitle is, They think you're their daughter, but you know that you're their son. My journey growing up transgender for eight-year-olds. This is not the only book like this. There are dozens of them being pushed in the direction of children in just that one store. This is upside down. Uh, Just for a moment, I want to speak to little boys and little girls who are in the room. God made you a little boy or he made you a little girl and you will always be what God made you. And that is a good thing. Delight in how God has made you. And parents, I want to speak to you for a moment. You cannot trust anything that you get at the library or anything you get on Disney Plus or anything that you get anywhere at the store. You have to screen what your children are reading before you let them look at them. Be very cautious because the world does have an agenda that is upside down. We have teachers who are members of this church who have been told by their schools that if one of their students decides to change their gender, they're not permitted to inform the parents that is upside down. Yesterday I was at the store and I was, uh, saw a teenager walking around, a teenager with a shirt that said, Live free, Playboy, with that iconic, famous logo of the bunny. Live free, when all I could see was the word slave. That is upside down. And if you try to point out to someone in our society that these lifestyles are destructive and abominable, then what do they do? They accuse you of being a hateful and evil and a bigot. And that is upside down. There are literally millions of examples that could be provided without ever leaving Levittown. Paul speaks about unbelievers in Philippians 3.19 and says of them, Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ." Keep that on the screen there for just a minute. Listen to the range of words that the concordance offers to translate that word belly. It could mean your literal stomach. It could mean appetites, which is probably the best word to use there. It also has a range of meaning that speaks of, quote, any organ in the midsection of the body. The word belly here is not only about sexual desire, but it certainly includes that. And that is what our society worships. When the gospel comes in, it straightens out whatever has been twisted. And when Jesus saves you, it opens your eyes to truth and turns your upside-down world right-side up. The sanctification process is the process of fixing your upside-downness, that treasuring what is of true value, delighting what is actually good, rejecting that which is poison for the soul. Don Eberle famously said about 20 years ago that politics is downstream of culture. In other words, if you want to change what is acceptable and celebrated in politics, then you have to change what is acceptable and celebrated in culture. And eventually, the government shifts to match that culture and its values. But let me tell you the secret that used to be well known, but America seems to have forgotten. It is probably true that politics is downstream of culture, but it is certainly true that both politics and culture are downstream of gospel transformation. Did Paul have an effect on the culture? Absolutely. Let's consider the question, how did Paul do that? Let's look again at the simple approach that he took when he entered into Thessalonica. Acts 17, 1-4, again, it says, Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews, and Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days, he did What? He reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did many, a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. So what did Paul do here? He preached the gospel. In this case, it was to the uh, the. Uh, Jews of the city. So he began showing them from the Old Testament scriptures that the Messiah had to come and suffer for his people. And it says that he reasoned with them, and it says that some of them were persuaded. We see in verse 4 that Paul was not only preaching to Jews, but also to Greeks in that city. And this was his practice in every place that he went. He presented the gospel, and when faith in Christ took root in the people, then culture began to change. Think about it this way. What if just hypothetically, what if you could convince every person on Long Island to agree with you about what is good and acceptable and beautiful regarding these sexual issues that we mentioned earlier? Just because they agree with you about what is right and wrong does not mean that they will stop sinning in those ways. People do things that they know are wrong all the time. But let's say, let's press even further. Let's say for the sake of argument that you could convince everyone not only of what is good, but to always do good in those ways. That they would always live moral, upright, unstained lives. Well, if that was your message, then you would end up just like the Pharisees teaching moralism of external conformity to the law. Believe it or not, the Pharisees were actually prolific missionaries. They would go all over the place talking to people about how to become a proselyte or a non-Jewishly born Jew. And the problem is that their message couldn't actually save anyone. Jesus said in Matthew 23, 15, "'Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte, when he converts to your religion,' You make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Something that sometimes the church forgets its mission. It's not to turn bad people into good people. It's to point sinners to a savior. Trying to correct someone's outward behavior without giving them the gospel is kind of like going to somebody who has gangrene and just putting a little band-aid on top, acting as though that's going to fix it. If you love wicked people, point them to Jesus. Because let's be real, the problem is not just an out there problem, it's an in here problem. Here's how Paul spoke about this in 1 Corinthians 6, 9-11. He says, "...or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived." Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Bad news for a lot of people, including a lot of people in this room, including all of us in this room. Paul says, And such were some of you. That's who you were. You were unworthy of heaven, but you were washed. You were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, please let me assure you that this room is full of sinners. Every last Christian in the room is unworthy of heaven based upon their own track record, and so are you. None of us meet the qualifications. God requires perfection. But those who trust in Christ are washed, they are purified, they are cleansed by him. We are given his perfect record. If you don't know Jesus Christ, I want you to know that you are not too far gone to be saved. He can save anyone to the uttermost. So if you are here, trust in Jesus Christ, that his death was of value to save you from your sins. Trust in him and you will be saved. It's important for us to see here, as we consider this fact, that as we look at our culture, as we look at society around us, It is not primarily our job to correct their moral outward actions. It is our primary objective to preach the gospel, and the rest will fall in line. The third thing that we're going to talk about is how to get this from the abstract and the historical to the present by talking about Christianity and Levittown. Church, I want to encourage you to be more concerned about having an eternal impact than you are about having a political or cultural impact in the present. But I also want you to be aware that your obedience or your lack of obedience will necessarily have an effect on the world around you. Every boat leaves a wake in its path. So let me leave you with five diagnostic questions that should help you determine if you are seeking to, like Paul, turn the world right side up. Question number one, are you distinct from the world? Perhaps the easiest way for the church to lose its potency is to begin to imitate the world. It's a huge problem when the world cannot tell if you're a Christian. If you are around worldly people very often, and you feel completely comfortable with them at all times when you join in their reindeer games, that is a major red flag. 1 John chapter 2, verse 15 through 17 puts it this way. He says, "'Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever.'" Do you love the same things that the world loves? Do you laugh at the same jokes that they do? Do you share their view of money? Does your tongue feel all too familiar with their profanity? Are your convictions regularly compromised because you can't give up that show or that movie? If you just look like the world, how can you expect to transform the world with the gospel? Jesus tells us that we are the salt of the earth. But then he seems to indicate that the salt can lose its saltiness. If you are walking in a worldly lifestyle, repent, honor the Lord by being recognizable as a Christian who is willing to put Christ above all else and live for Him. The second question is this, are you reasoning with the world? I love what it says about Paul in this passage. It says that he reasoned with them and that some of them were persuaded. There are many Christians who are actively seeking to persuade people of many things in the realm of politics or in the realm of culture. I mean, you just have to spend a little bit of time on Facebook to see that these arguments, these discussions are taking place often. Are you more likely to defend your political candidate or your position on abortion or to talk about Christ? Now, I don't think there is anything wrong with having a political or cultural conversation, but if we are missing the gospel, we are missing the point. I hope you see that the accusation that was made against the Christians in Thessalonica was true. They did claim that Jesus was king. And if people in your world could just make that their primary accusation against you, that would be a good thing. Is that the main thing people see coming from you? Or is there another message that is primary in your life? We have 117 members here at the church, 117 of us. It's a small army. If every single one of our members would commit themselves to seek to reason with four people, four unbelievers about the gospel this coming year, that would have a radical impact. Even if none of those people ever actually hear and believe, just doing that would make our church, in my view, the most evangelistic church in the New York region by far. I encourage you, commit yourself to reason with people. I particularly want to encourage the young adults of our church at this point. The young adults in our church are excellent at doing this. I particularly want you to watch them and see the way that they speak to visitors to our church, the way that they encircle them and then invite them and encourage them and ask questions of them and seek to discuss with them about the Lord. It's very often that I speak to a visitor and I begin talking with them and they say, I ask them, who have you met so far at the church? And the list is all the young adults. All of those people have gone out and made sure to make them welcome here and to speak with them about the Lord. I also love that the young adults are often the ones who come to me asking questions that they have received from others. Questions that are difficult, questions that unbelievers present to Christians. And they will say, how do I answer that question about this verse? Or how do I answer this question about worldview? And how do I go back to them and reason with them? Church, we can learn a lot from the young adults in this church. Young adults, I want to encourage you, and you are doing a great job in this way. Keep striving for the Lord and church. May we learn from their example, and may we reason with others of the gospel. Question number three, do you love the church? You might be wondering why this question makes it onto this particular list, but there is a very simple answer as to why. Jesus said in John 13, 35, By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. That was certainly true at the church in Thessalonica. Listen to the way that Paul speaks about them in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. He says, But we were gentle among you, meaning when we were still with you presently, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children, So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. Could that life, could your life be described like that? Do you desire to share your life with the body of Christ? Are you willing to spend and be spent for them? Do you give up your own comfort in order to serve? Do you give up your own time to care for them? Do you show hospitality to them? Do you listen to them when they need to talk? Can you say of the members of this church the same words that Paul said about the church in Thessalonica? You have become very dear to me. If you do not love the church, what kind of impact do you anticipate you will have on our world? We're actually only going to have four questions. This will be our last one for the day. And it is, are you willing to suffer for Christ? Paul also wrote to the Thessalonian church and told them about his suffering for Christ. And he told them, For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass and just as you know. Paul and Silas were accused of turning the world upside down. But their victories never came without extreme loss. In the letter to the Galatians, Paul referenced the scars of his many beatings and his imprisonments by saying, I bear in my body the marks of Jesus. It's easy for us to answer hypothetical questions about suffering. Would you be willing to be imprisoned for Jesus? Would you be willing to die for Jesus? It's easy for us in the position where we are, sitting in this nice, comfortable, warm room in the winter day, to say, yes, I believe I would do that. But it's much harder when the rubber meets the road, and the question is more like this. Am I willing to lose that friend because I stand up for truth? Am I willing to lose my job because I can't lie on that form they asked me to sign? Am I willing to have a chilly relationship with my extended family because I cannot support my uncle's gay wedding? Now, if you're not willing to suffer in small things like that, what makes you think that you could stand when heavy persecution comes your way? The only way to suffer persecution well is to know that there is nothing in this world that is as precious as knowing and loving Jesus. It's worth losing everything else if it means that you can have him forever. And if that is true of you, then there is no threat that anyone on this earth could make that holds any weight. He is worthy and He is worth it. Let's pray. Our Father God in heaven, I pray that today as we have come to some relatively controversial and challenging things, Lord, I just ask that you would help us to see the main thing. That is, the gospel is of first importance. And that is true not only of how we receive, but also how we share to the world. I pray, Lord, that the church would never be muddied by a political message or by a cultural message, but our message would be centered fully on Christ and that everything else would be straightened because of that. Lord, I do ask that in the future, when people look at this community, this neighborhood, this town, this island, that people would look at us and be able to see that there was a straight line of impact drawn from the life of this church to the life and culture of this island. We pray, Lord, that we would have a radical impact for eternity, that when we get to heaven and we look back, that we would see a straight line of impact from this church to our community, where we see people who have been dead in their trespasses and sins come to life in Jesus Christ. Lord, there is no transformation greater than that. We pray, Lord, that this would be a place where sinners are welcomed and that they are received, and that they hear the gospel, and that they will be saved. We pray that in the precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen.